So 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Um, let's go ahead and just read that. It's not a very long passage. And then we'll make some comments about it. It says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. As Paul gives warning about the false teachers that made their way into the church, he states that they had been there according to what the Spirit had said, that he had warned that this was going to take place. And it's just a reminder to us that we, we must be vigilant. We must be always on guard for our enemy who is wanting to devour. He's wanting to infiltrate the church. He's wanting to cause the church to, to be uh, led astray and find people's faith shipwrecked. He doesn't rest in this. And the specific teaching that we're going to read about is that... Um, the joys of marriage and good food, that those are sinful. And that if we're really going to be close to the Lord, that these things can't be touched. But what does the Bible say about joy? What does the Bible say specifically about this? Pleasure. The title of today's study is, What the Bible Teaches About Pleasure. You know, we all know that God wants us to be holy, for He is holy. He wants us to obey his commandments as, a, as an expression of our love for him. We know this. This is not a message on, um, you know, go out and, and live it up and sin it up. But this is a message about walk in the pleasure that God has given to us as believers and the freedom that we have on it. So what does the Bible say about the Christian and walking in pleasure? Well, we begin there in verse 1 as we consider this, this thought. And we read that the Spirit was going to come in the latter times. The latter times. They viewed themselves in the latter times. For the things that Paul was saying were happening, he says the Spirit said would take place in the latter times. So what are the latter times? And how long do the latter times last for? Well, the latter times began the day Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father. And it will continue until the day he returns. These are the last days. These are the latter times. Living, there's nothing that needs to take place for the, for the return of the Lord for his church. And so, of course, we know the, the world's going to end in those last seven years of great tribulation. But this is what we read is going to happen it's in the latter days. Now, for some of us, we're thinking, my goodness, how long are the last days? That's a great question that nobody has an answer to. But we do know why the Lord is waiting. We do know why he's tarrying and he has not returned. I mean, think about this. It's been some 1,900 years. Are any of you glad that Jesus did not come back and wrap it all up 1,800 years ago? Yeah, I am. None of us would be a part of the kingdom of God. None of us would be a part of salvation. None of us would have any part in this. So why is the Lord waiting? He wants to get a good return on his investment. What's his investment? Not silver and not gold, but the precious blood of the Lamb of God, his Son. And he wants to see as many people 
as possible come to salvation. And so we look at this and we think, well, if it would have come up, you know, 100 years ago, 80 years ago, 90 years ago, whatever it is, we wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be a part of this. And so we're all glad that the Lord has tarried. Now, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 9, Peter said, it's been stated that scoffers would come in the last days saying, where is his coming? Where is the promise of his coming? I mean, you guys have been following Jesus for 30 years and he's not back yet. Are you sure he's coming back? Do you see that? Even 30 years later or so, whenever this was written, they were already expecting and the opponents were already challenging the veracity of the promise of Jesus that he would come back. And now here we are some 1900 years later. But we're told here that that would take place. Well, as you read on in that passage, there in 2 Peter 3, we come down to this, this verse here. It says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He wants to get a full return on his investment. He wants to see people come to faith. He is patiently waiting and he's putting off his return until that last person comes to faith. Now the Lord is worthy of the reward of his suffering. That was, a, that was the motto of the Moravian missionary movement. They, they, they made the statement, worthy is the lamb of the reward of his suffering. Well, what is the, the reward? It's, it's redeemed people. It's people coming to repentance. It was that statement, actually, that, that, that phrase, worthy is a lamb to receive the reward of his suffering. Two men in that, those ranks went down to the West Indies to become missionaries down there, an island where the governor would not allow the gospel to be preached. He would not allow any missionaries to come in. Um, and he did not allow those slaves to ever hear about the hope of Jesus Christ um, he wanted them to be those that did not believe. He was afraid that if they believed, they would be free. And they would begin to have ideas that would cause them to uh, would loosen that uh, a tyrannical grip that he had upon them. Well, as the story goes, and I'm condensing it, eventually two men heard about this. They were married and they had businesses. And they said, we're going to go down there and we're going to preach the gospel. As they were departing, well, before that, they were like, well, you're not, they're not going to let you in. He says, we will sell ourselves into slavery if we have to, that we might preach the gospel to these people. They must hear. And as they were leaving, um, people were weeping and people were fearful. And, and, and they yelled off, as they were departing, they yelled off to the congregation and their family and their friends. They said, worthy is the lamb to receive the reward of his suffering. Well, as they got down there, um, they got onto the island, they got sick, they ended up having to come back in short order. Months later, they were already back home. But it launched a missionary movement, and that became the motto, that became the, the, the call and the cry um, of those people to go out into the world. And eventually the gospel did go to the West Indies, and they were liberated with the truth. But this is it. He's worthy of the reward of his suffering. This is why the Lord is tarrying. So, yes, it's the latter days. And the Lord will return in an hour that he knows. But, you know, in that passage there in 2 Peter, we read that um, with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. What does that mean? The Lord has been gone for two days. 
He's not been gone that long. We measure things by, you know, the second. But the Lord, for a day, it's a, a thousand years is just one day. So he is not slack concerning his promises. He is going to come. But the Spirit clearly communicated, expressly stated to the church that there would be those deceivers that would make their way in. Now, we get a clear example in the book of Acts of how the Spirit led the church. They were being led, and, and Paul was able to appeal to this, to this um, uh, prophetic word that had come, that there was going to be deceivers. And as he talks about this, they were aware. They would have nodded their heads and said, yeah, that is what the Holy Spirit has told us. But how did the Holy Spirit tell them? How did they come to this express statement? Well, I mean, we, you know, Jesus, of course, spoke about the false Christ that would come. But there was more to it than that. The Holy Spirit speaks to his church. Now, I want to be real careful as we move forward so nobody misunderstands here. There is no further revelation of doctrine or truth that we are looking for. There's no ministry, no prophetic word that's ever going to come that's going to add to Scripture or give us a greater clarity. It is a finished revelation. But to then conclude that there is no longer a place for the Holy Spirit to speak to His church through this gift is just not what we read. Think about the early church and how the Holy Spirit spoke to them to bring encouragement or specific instructions about specific events. In Acts 13, 2, the, the church was told to begin missionary work and separate Paul and Barnabas. That's not a doctrine. That was a directive. Um, in Acts uh, 11, uh, 10 and 11, Cornelius is told to, excuse me, Peter is told to go and, and eat a meal with Cornelius. It was, a, it was a stressful situation, and the Lord told him what to do there. In Acts 19, 21, um, the Spirit leads Paul to specific towns. In Acts 16, 7, he keeps him from going to Bithynia. The Holy Spirit is leading. He is guiding and directing the early church. Paul's warned of imprisonment by the prophet Agabus, and there was prophecies about famine that they were going to face. The Lord spoke to his early church. And we should be looking for that ministry of the Holy Spirit. But we are told in 1 Corinthians 14.29 and 1 Thessalonians 5.21 that we are to test the word that comes. Just because somebody stands up and says, I have a prophetic word, does not mean we need to believe it. Everybody who says they, they've got something does not have something. But that should not cause us to reject the guidance and the encouragement and the instruction that the Holy Spirit does give to his church. In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says, Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God, for no one understands him. However, in the Spirit he speaks mystery, but he who prophesies speaks edification, exhortation, and comfort to men. The gift of prophecy is something that we should desire. And that was spoken to the general congregation of believers there at Corinth. Paul wanted them to walk in that gifting, to, to hear what the Spirit of the Lord had to say on how to bring comfort to a brother or sister, how to exhort somebody in their walk with the Lord. We should look for the ministry of the Holy Spirit to be uh, happening and functioning in our lives, in our group. We need to be praying for that. We need to be pursuing that gift. Lord, speak through me to your church. 
bring encouragement through my life to other people's lives. It's so important that we're doing this. Now, I have this thought, and I don't have, I don't have an answer to it, so I'm going to give you a wondering of Troy Warner without any conclusion. Why, with all that we've just faced, why didn't we hear? Why didn't I hear prophetically? Or for that matter, I don't know of a single Christian leader. I don't know of any word that was delivered to the church of the times that we were about to face. Now listen, the Lord can speak when he wants to, and he can be silent when he wants to. He's not forced to do that. So I'm just curious. Lord, is there a reason why you didn't inform us, the church, as you, you formed the early church of a famine that was going to come? I don't have an answer to it. <laughs> and, you know, I don't know any of us really um, can say for certain, but this is something that's caused me just to ponder. It's like, was I in enough prayer before you? Was I still enough to allow you to speak, to say something? What if I even had enough faith, if you would have said it, to declare it? You know, we don't know these things, but this is what I do know. The Lord speaks to his church, and we need to have an ear to hear, and we need to be prepared to speak when he shares. So we need the ministry of the Spirit. The early church there at Ephesus, they knew that the Spirit had expressly told them with such clarity, with such certainty, that false teachers were going to come in. And what happened was these false teachers departed from their faith. They heeded deceiving spirits, doctrines of demons. Here's the deal. When somebody follows a false teaching, it's not just that they've been duped by a really clever man or woman. That man or that woman has been duped, and they're, they're um, espousing a doctrine of demons. So you have the spirit who's working in the church, but you have a false spirit that is also seeking to infiltrate the church and confuse it. We need to be walking carefully. You know, the deceptions, the cults, the false teachings that have come in, again, we need to understand where they, who they are and what they're from. Now, why do people fall for all of these false religions and all of these cultic teachings? Because they are energized by a dark force, by Satan and his team, seeking to lead people astray. And that's what we see, is that he puts a sway over people's minds. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4, says that the God of this age, Satan, has blinded people. And they fall for these false doctrines. And we need to be those that have our eyes wide open and aware of his tactics now, some people, they, they choose blindness because they want to walk in darkness. This is what Jesus faced in his ministry. John chapter 3, verses 19 through 21, we read this. And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does... The truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. So some are deceived by a teaching, and others are deceived by their lusts. Here, they were deceived by a teaching. A teaching that said you should not marry. 
You should be celibate. You shouldn't enjoy um, sex within marriage. This is a bad thing. And you shouldn't enjoy good food. You shouldn't allow your taste buds to have any excitement whatsoever. And that's, that was the message that they were uh, espousing. In verse 2, it says they were speaking lies and hypocrisy. They were lying, pretending like it was true, but they knew they were hypocrites. They knew what they were saying was not true. You know, these false teachers, now I, I believe in, you know, subsequent generations and, and disciples, they get deluded into really believing it. But the first man, the first woman who begins to say something, unless they're just crazy too, but the first person, they know if they made it up. I mean, come on, I mean, they know whether or not they really, you know, uh, an angel Moroni showed up and gave them golden plates or not. They know. And so they speak. I mean, what does it take to want to deceive somebody? I imagine most of you, your conscience is immediately struck when you give bad information to somebody. You're like, oh no, I told them the wrong thing. And you, you do, you know, we do everything we can to make sure that information is correct. But these guys, they're, they're lying and they are, what the word of God says, hypocrites. They have their conscience seared with a hot iron. What's that? It means they, they don't even care anymore that they're lying to people. It doesn't bother them whatsoever. One author says, The grim sequence of events in the career of false teachers has now been revealed. First, they turn a deaf ear to their conscience until it becomes cauterized. Next, they feel no scruple in becoming hypocritical liars. Thirdly, they expose themselves to the influence of deceiving spirits. Finally, they lead their listeners to abandon the faith. The anatomy of a false teacher. And so this is who they were dealing with. What was their message? Their message was, well, you know, hey, people, if you want to have victory over the flesh, if you really want to be close to God, then you need to make certain that you're not married, that you're abstaining from um, uh, sex, and that you don't enjoy food. Because they had a dualistic view of this world. And here's the dualism that they held to that the created world was evil and the spiritual world was good. So anything physical was considered evil. And the, the spirit was good. So if you enjoyed something, that was evil. If you had a physical enjoyment or pleasure that came, then you needed to stop. You needed to, to, to not engage in that. Two of the strongest desires that man knows is a desire for food and a desire for sex. And so they, they centered on these two things. Now listen, God is the one who created both of those things. And he gave them to mankind for his enjoyment. Unfortunately, it gets perverted and it gets corrupted. And people end up misusing it and gluttony gets involved. Or, um, you know, sexual immorality gets involved. But, but the Bible doesn't forbid Marriage and the Bible doesn't forbid eating a good meal. You know, when I was in, uh, I had just begun full time ministry, um, probably, I don't know, I think I was probably 18 or 19 years old. I was overseas in Australia and um, sat down at a meal with a, an elderly couple in the church. And um, we were, my, my friend and myself would, would lead worship. I know, it's hard to believe. I used to lead worship. It wasn't pretty, but I did it. And I'm not planning on doing it anytime soon. But, um, but anyways, we would lead worship. And uh, 
this lady said, you know, I love the, I love the worship. I enjoy it so much. And um, so we started talking about it. She goes, but you know what? I don't sing the songs because I don't feel like it's right for me to enjoy worship that much. And we were baffled. I mean, we're 18, 19-year-old guys. And we're like, what? You don't think you should enjoy it? No, I don't, I don't think we should have that kind of enjoyment in worship. So I just don't sing those songs. And we talked about how we are created to worship. And in the presence of the Lord is fullness of joy. And this brings so much pleasure to the Lord. He wants us to rejoice. And, but she, just, she had been taught that you shouldn't have pleasure at church. <laughs> you shouldn't have any enjoyment there. If you're really spiritual, you should look like you're baptized in lemon juice. Frozen chosen is the way to go. No excitement, no joy. And um, I watched her after that, and she never would sing songs because she said she enjoyed it too much. That is, somewhere along the line, somebody told her something that really messed up her faith. And her, her ability, she was a Christian, but I mean, her ability just to walk in the, the beauty of it. Well, there are always there, those that are there that want to make certain that you don't have fun, that you don't have joy in your life. And they'll, they'll spiritualize it. And they'll say, listen, if you really want to be close with God, then you can't be married, you can't have sex, you can't have um, uh, a good meal because your flesh enjoys those things and therefore that's sinful and wrong. But that's not what the Bible teaches us at all. This teaching for an ascetic lifestyle is not one that is found in Scripture. Now, the Bible tells us to be holy, for God is holy. The Bible tells us to deny ourselves, But the Bible does not teach us have no pleasure. The Bible doesn't teach us to have no enjoyment in this life. This was such a common teaching just down the road to Ephesus, where Timothy was at the church at Colossae. They were told, do not touch, do not handle, do not taste. Again, that same dualistic philosophy that existed in the first century world that's still around today. For some, if you have any enjoyment and if you have any pleasure, then there's clearly something unspiritual about you. And you shouldn't have these things. Be leery of any group that says to you, that if you want to be right with God, then you've got to be miserable. You can't have any enjoyment. Now listen, there are sinful things, and there are things that God has just given to us for enjoyment. Now look at what Paul says in verse 4. He says, For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. So they were talking about having some kind of you know, bland, no-frills kind of a meal. And so don't have meat. Don't eat this, you know, thing that's spiced and, and tastes good. But Paul says, that's not what the Bible says. When God was done with creation, he said, it's all good. And so we read this in Genesis, um, where, where the Lord makes this statement, verse 131. In Genesis 9, chapter 3, we read about how he's given these things to sustain life. And so you can enjoy. If you're a vegetarian because you want to be a vegetarian, enjoy your vegetables. No, no problem with that. Paul didn't have a problem with people being vegetarians. He didn't have problems with people that felt called to singleness. It isn't that singleness is wrong or that not eating meat is wrong. It's just that it doesn't, this does not make you closer to God one way or the other. There's a freedom there. Um, you know, for some of you, you... You know, vegetarian thing, that's the way you want to go. Just, that, that is fine. That's, that's not me. As a matter of fact, 
I, I recently, with all the, you know, the, the sickness I have, this condition um, with my liver, I had to go through all these tests. And one of the tests was they did an endoscopy. And um, when I was coming out, and they give you like an amnesiac. <laughs> so when you come out, you keep asking the same question over and over again. So my wife tells me. And um, so I kept asking, you know, I came out and um, I said, I, you know, have I gone in yet? You know, why are we here? And I'm just, you know, was, I was clueless. And um, she thought it was quite funny. And she will probably hear her tell this story anyways. But um, I was hungry. Of course, you can't eat, you know, and I was starving. And so I started talking about food. And um, the doctor said, he goes, well, you know, just be careful what you eat. And I said, well, we're going to Mission Barbecue. And um, so, and he's, oh, he goes, be careful. He goes, that, that might be a little heavy. And I said to him, in my deluded state, I still had this one clear thought. I said, I was born to eat meat. That, that's what I said to the doctor. I was born to eat meat. Now, some of you feel like you were born to eat vegetables. More power to you. And, it, and it's not, this is good, this is bad. And, and, and the reality is, though, even... You know, those of you that are eating vegetarian, vegetarians, you're eating, you're, you make it taste good. The idea here is don't enjoy your food. You'll be closer to God. If you really want to control your flesh, then you should never have any kind of enjoyment. Is that biblical? Is that we shouldn't have enjoyment? 1 Timothy 6.17 says, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. The rich, those that have an abundance, they shouldn't be proud thinking they've got it all under control. They shouldn't trust in those riches, but they certainly should enjoy them. That's it. 1 Timothy 6.17, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. God is for our pleasure. Not sin, not fulfilling of lust, but God's happy for you to be happy and to enjoy. Now listen, there are all kinds of people and they've always existed and they will always be around that want to make you feel guilty for going on that family vacation, for going and watching some movie that you saw, for enjoying a, a play, for enjoying some book. And they're there to kind of say, yeah, but you know, I don't know that you really should be there. And they call it into question. I remember Pastor Chuck telling, making this statement years ago. He says, Christianity is the most liberal of all philosophies. And then he quoted this verse, all things are lawful. All things are lawful. This is the Bible. Now, some take that and think, oh, then I can go live however I want to. All things are lawful, but not all things are what? Profitable. Not all things are helpful. The Jewish sect of the Essenes in the first century world had this philosophy that you couldn't have any enjoyment. You needed to live a celibate life. You couldn't enjoy things. If you saw where they lived, you, you believed that they believed it. I mean, they went out to the place where there was nothing, out to the Dead Sea. They weren't going to enjoy anything. They were going to be spiritual. But that's not spiritual. Um, G.K. Chesterton put it this way. You say grace before meals. I guess I should say this first. So Paul says, hey, the word of God says we can enjoy these things. And with thanksgiving, we can enjoy the meals. We can enjoy those pleasures of life. And so if the word of God allows it, and you do all things to the glory of God, you're doing it with praise and worship, then there is a freedom there. And so G.K. Chesterton put it this way. He says, you say grace before meals. All right. But I say grace before the play and opera. 
and grace before the concert and the pantomime, and grace before I open a book. And I say grace before sketching and painting, swimming, fencing, boxing, walking, playing, dancing, and grace before I dip the pen in the ink. He was combating those that said, you can't enjoy this life. You must be miserable. You got to be a Christian. But is that Christianity? It's not Christianity. John Stoss says, we should determine then to recognize and acknowledge, appreciate, and celebrate all the gifts of the Creator, the glory of the heavens and of the earth, the mountain, the river, the sea, of the forest and the flowers, of the birds and the beasts and the butterflies, and of the intricate balance of the natural environment. Our God made this. We can enjoy this planet. He made it for us. We are created in God's image and appointed his stewards the joys of gender, the joys of marriage, the joys of sex, the joys of children, parenthood, and family life, and of our extended family and friends, and of the rhythm of work and rest, of the daily work as a means to cooperate with God and serve the common good, and of the Lord's Day when we exchange work for worship, the blessings of peace, freedom, justice, and good government, and of food and drink, clothing and shelter, and our humanity, excuse me, and our human creativity expressed in music, literature, painting, sculpture, and drama, and in the skills and the strengths displayed in sport. Enjoy your life. Enjoy what God has given to you. I don't deserve to have any enjoyment. The Lord created this place and relationships, and he is giving you things to enjoy them. And there's freedom. So the next time you go on that family vacation, and that one relative of yours who seems to always kind of question and throw dispersion upon you know, your, your pleasure, don't let them do it. Enjoy that vacation. Enjoy that sporting event. Enjoy that place you go to. This is what Paul says. Do all things to what? The glory of God. We've been called to holiness. This is not a question of do we, are we holy or unholy? No, it's not even, not even in the conversation. We are holy. We should obey the Lord because we love him. If you, oh, you love me, you'll keep my commandments. We're commandment keepers. But we also are those that will enjoy the things that, the God, that God has given to us, just like the wealthy person can enjoy. So we're talking about freedoms. We're talking about liberties in some, some regard here. And a liberty is an activity that you feel you have before God to engage in that does not uh, hinder you or some, uh, in your walk with the Lord, it doesn't cause you to not be able to... Um, uh, stay in, a, in a, uh, an abiding relationship with the Lord. And so we have freedom. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. So if your freedom keeps you from following the Lord, it is not a freedom. It's a bondage. And so you've got to allow the Holy Spirit to, to lead you and, and take an honest look at your life. I mean, you know, you can, you can delude yourself and keep saying, it's a freedom, it's a freedom. Now let's talk about, you know, drinking of alcohol. I have freedom to drink alcohol. I can do this. And yet every weekend you end up drunk. I would tend to dispute that you have a freedom there. I have freedom to go to this place and that place. And yet every time you go to that place, you end up getting caught up with the ungodly crowd and you're sinning. You don't have freedom there. 
Well, I have freedom to enjoy my vacation. The Lord has given me, you know, this, this, uh, the, the resources to do it. You're absolutely, you do. But if planning for that vacation keeps you from investing in the work of the kingdom of God with your time and your energy and your resources, then I would say you don't have a freedom. You see, what, see how it works? Uh, there is freedom to walk in the things the Lord has given to us, but if they cause me to not be able to walk out my Christian faith and it hinders me and it leads me into sin, then that which is lawful has become unprofitable. And I need to say, I don't have that freedom. And really for the Christian, for the person that's wanting to please the Lord, we know this already. We are, I mean, the Holy Spirit makes it so clear so quickly when we engage in something we shouldn't be involved in. So yes, holiness. Without holiness, we're not going to please the Lord. But freedom to walk in the things that God has given to us, that we're not being brought under the power. That is the message that Paul was wanting the Ephesians there that uh, were under Timothy's care to be informed about, to be taught. Yeah, you can... You can enjoy uh, a married relationship. You can enjoy the food. God gave us these things. He said it was good, and, and you're praying, you're thanking the Lord for it. You have freedom in that. Now, some will take this, and because their heart is looking for a way to indulge, they will twist this to their own destruction. But that shouldn't keep us from being able to step back and celebrate the joys that God brings into our life. And when you hear a brother or sister that gets to go and enjoy one of those things in their life, rejoice with them. And, oh, praise the Lord that you get to go and do that. You get to, you know, use that blessing that God has given. But make sure we do it to the glory of God. So there is that freedom. Now, listen. If I was to say, is this the major concern facing the church in America? I would say probably not. I think we... I think we'll probably need another message. But this is where we are. This is the text before us, right? But maybe, who knows? Maybe having a wrong view of pleasure and that I shouldn't enjoy these things, maybe this is what leads people to start walking in uh, a liberal mindset. I, I actually believe that legalism and liberalism are about that far apart. Because neither of them are based upon the word of God. And they both have to do with what we do, the activities of life. And so for the person who's walking a legalistic, ascetic, not going to do anything, not going to have any fun lifestyle, you know, it's a very short jump to go from there to jump all the way in. And you probably know people like this. Like they were hardcore, they were legalistic for so long, and now they're just like, it's anything goes. It's because those two doctrines are just like that far apart, those false doctrines. So here's my encouragement to you. Know the word of God. Know what he's allowed for you to do. And walk in enjoyment. Have fun as a family. Have fun as brothers and sisters in Christ. But never allow that enjoyment to get in the way of you serving the Lord and walking a lifestyle of obedience and holiness to the Lord. That's it. This is what the Bible has to say about pleasure. Enjoy the things God's given to you. Have a great family vacation. You're like, yeah, well, we can't have vacations right now. I know. But when you can have a vacation, enjoy it. 
Enjoy that vacation. I ask the worship team to come back up and close with the song here. And just, let's just pray. And ask the Lord to give us wisdom to search our hearts. If we're saying we have a liberty, then may it truly be a liberty. May it not be something we're deceiving ourselves in. If you're being brought under the power of it, brother, sister, that's not a liberty. That's something you need to let go. And if you have that mentality that, boy, Christianity is only supposed to be hard and it's never supposed to have any kind of enjoyment to it, I pray this morning, (laughs) hearing how Paul corrected that, Ascetic mentality liberates you to enjoy the life that God has given to you. And all the more to run after the Lord. Father, would you search our hearts? We trust you. Our eyes are upon you. We thank you, Lord, that you've given us all things to be enjoyed. And that you've given to us freely. Lord, we thank you for family. We thank you for friends. We thank you for talents. We thank you for talented people. We thank you for resources that allow us to go and have a good meal. We thank you for our children and our husbands and our wives. We thank you for one another. We thank you for good music. We thank you, Lord, for the arts. We thank you for this life. We thank you for the creation that's all around us. Lord, teach us to walk in the joy of this life with the many things that you've given to us. And may you give us a spirit of discernment to know when we're indulging in things that are not for our enjoyment, but are detrimental to our walk with you. Lord, we want to please you, and we want to live full, rich lives, taking up our cross, following hard after you, and receiving the blessings you bring to us along the way. I just encourage you. Allow the Spirit to speak to you. And maybe you don't have this view of God. Maybe your thought, your thought is God's just a joy killer in heaven. No, he's not. He's made all this stuff. He's made all of this stuff for us to enjoy. This is why we as Christians, reconciled to the one who's made it all, ought to be the most joyful of all people, soaking up and wringing out every bit of excitement and joy that this life has to bring while walking in holiness. Thank you, Lord. Amen.